Welcome to Straight Thinking, the GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, we welcome the frequently visiting scholar, Dr. Ken Keithley. First of all, we'll say welcome to you, Ken. Good to have you with us again. Great to be here. Uh, Ken Keithley is Senior Professor of Theology, and he occupies the Jesse Henley Endowed Chair of Biblical Theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, where he has been teaching since 2006. We'll get into more of your background and what you're up to as we go on this podcast, but uh, Ken Samples, uh, we have... uh, Ken Keithley here for a particular reason, and we're glad to have him. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, Joe. Uh, Ken is one of our speakers at a workshop that we're going to be doing this week, Uh, and we've invited a a number of very distinguished theologians to talk about the two books idea, the book of nature and the book of scripture. So Ken is here, and I wanted to bring him on straight thinking and get an opportunity to talk with him a bit more about a number of ideas. Hmm, Terrific. All right. Well, let's uh, get started and we'll see where we go. Ken, you are... uh, you're one of my favorite theologians. Uh, I like the way you think about issues. I also like how charitable and generous you are, even to people you disagree with. And so it's always a pleasure to have you here at RTB and to have you on the podcast, Straight Thinking. Well, um, thank you. I've always enjoyed being at uh, Reasons to Believe. And I I just want to commend uh, your stance and uh, the stance of everyone at RTB, whether uh, Hugh, who is uh, transitioning, Fuzz, uh, you. um, It's always a delight to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Let me begin, and and I think, uh, Joe and Dave, this will just be a time where we'll We'll ask Ken things we're interested in, topics that come up here at Reasons to Believe. Uh, Ken, the first topic I'd like to ask you about is the doctrine of revelation in Christianity is very important. God's revealed himself in nature. God's revealed himself in the human conscience. He's revealed himself uh, in the people of Israel in the Old Testament, then there's this incredible truth of Christianity. Uh, I think it was, um, oh, I've, I'm trying to remember his name now. One theologian said that the incarnation is a greater truth than all of the claims of fiction. Hmm. Uh, J.I. Packer. Um, in light of that, in light of that revelation, and of course that incarnation distinguishes Christianity even from Judaism and Islam, Uh, Nevertheless, uh, some people would propose today, some secular philosophers, that that God is hidden, Uh, and some would even propose that may be the best objection that people have concerning God. What are your thoughts about Revelation and that hidden challenge? Yeah, well, I think that it isn't just uh, skeptics who would say God is hidden. In fact, in fact, if they even would concede that there's there is a God who is hidden, then they're acknowledging that there is a God who is there. Uh, the question of divine hiddenness uh, is one that 
well, it goes back as far as the Old Testament, where you have the psalmist, God, how long will you hide your face from us right. forever? That's right. Uh, Psalm 13 uh, asks that very explicitly. We were created for fellowship with God. That is the message that the opening chapters of the Bible tells us. God created us in his image uh, to be on mission with him, to enjoy uh, an unimpeded, uh, immediate fellowship with him in the garden. God walked with Adam in the cool of the day uh, in a way that all of us wish we could walk with God now. Mm, I mean, that's, that's why we were created. Um, we were created for God and to enjoy him. Um, the Bible then goes on to tell us that God has uh, expelled us from the garden. There is now... A, a barrier. There is a, a distance between God and the human race. This is for our benefit. Um, nothing is more dangerous to sinful humanity than a holy God. Mm. Um, I mean, yes, we find places in the Bible where God revealed himself very unambiguously. Just look at the um, the Exodus narrative uh, where God delivers the people of Israel from the bondage of, of Pharaoh, uh, and it's 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 as much judgment as it is grace. Um, it it is it is a dangerous thing to be in the to be in the very presence mm-hmm. of a holy God, and and we are not holy. Yeah. Uh, so so then the level of of moral responsibility rises to the point that no human is able to handle that. So there has to be there. Um, a, a, a sacrifice for our sins. There has to be a way in which we can have this, this fellowship with him. So that there, there is, without a doubt, uh, it, it, there is this biblical idea of there being a particular distance between God and humanity. And, and the Bible makes it very clear that it, it is because of our condition uh, and, and the way we are that God does have that type of distance. But God doesn't leave us in that mm. condition. That's also the message of, of, of the Bible. That, and that is why, as, as J.I. Packer says, uh, we have where God not only um, speaks, but he becomes one of us. And so there we have not just a propositional or cognitive revelation. Uh, we have something that, that is um, ontological. God took on flesh and became one of us. And so um, I think that the questions that skeptics ask, I think Christians ask those kind of questions every once in a while, uh, whenever we think about it. I mean, as a young Christian, I always always thought, uh, well, well, why doesn't every Sunday um, angels from heaven just burst from the sky? Mm. And instead of yeah, I think you and I were talking earlier how you spoke at a Sunday school class this Sunday. Man, wouldn't angels do a better job? You know, and and you know if they just came down from heaven and just all over the world, um, just you know came down and proclaimed the truth, and then went back up again. You know, that that would be you know that would be cool uh, on the uh, and. Uh, yet God has not chosen to do that. He has chosen to do something very, 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 very different. And that is he has just chosen to deal, uh, reveal himself to us um, through a particular people. Uh, 
that is uh, all descended from a particular man. God revealed, God met Abraham and called him uh, and blessed him with to become the father of a mighty nation. Uh, and from that nation comes the one uh, who is Jesus of Nazareth, who is uh, the, the son of God, uh, made of flesh, but also the second person of the Trinity. So God, and this is what's known as the scandal of particularity. Mm -hmm. Here we have a universal problem and God deals with it in a very particular way. And so um, I've often, you know, I, I, as a young Christian, I would wonder why doesn't God do the angel thing? Right. And I think that the answer to that is, is that there would not be one more believer mm. than there is. Uh, I mean, the one thing that we see in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that here is the ultimate revelation. Jesus says, um, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Yeah. And yet, and yet, we find where the human response, uh, by and large, was that of re rejection and resistance. Again, as a young Christian, whenever I read where Jesus says, it is important or needful that, that I depart so the Holy Spirit would come. And I'd think, no, Jesus, you know, <laughs> stay, you know, it would be cool. It'd be great if Jesus were, uh, was in Jerusalem right now. And then we could say, hey, look, there's this 2000 year old guy, uh, one who lives in Jerusalem. And if you go there, he'll heal you, you know? Yeah. yeah so, so how's that for, for, for uh, revelation? And yet, no, he, he went back to, uh, to the right hand of the Father. And, and in fact, since I kind of hold to a, a premillennial understanding of, of the kingdom, I do believe that there will be a day in which Jesus is in Jerusalem and anybody wants to see him can. And yet, yet what does the biblical record say that what will be the end of that kingdom is that is Lucifer will be loosed for a short while and there will be another rebellion. And you think, how can it be? How can it be that people will rebel with the unimpeded uh, revelation of God? And the answer is, is that the problem isn't merely cognitive. The problem isn't merely empirical. Uh, the problem is more fundamental, more fundamental than that, and that, that there is something wrong with the human heart. Mm. Uh, and so, therefore... Um, God has ordained a world in which there is a sufficient unambiguous revelation uh, so that everyone who is so inclined to seek out God will definitely find him because he has spoken. And yet he has sufficiently stepped back so that no one is compelled to believe. Uh, Blaise Pascal said it better than I can mm. uh, in the Ponzes. He says he has willed to make himself quite recognizable by those who seek them with all their hearts and to be hidden from those who flee from him with all their hearts. There is enough light for those who only desire to see and enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. And, and so I, I agree with that, yeah. that yes, there is a very clear revelation. Uh, the heavens declared the glory of God. As you said just a little while ago, um, the, the three levels of general revelation, the cosmos, um, providential human history, and then 
within every human heart, the human conscience. So God has made himself known such that people are, are morally responsible. Um, but he has ultimately made himself known in a particular way in that he has spoken through Abraham this, this, the, the, there is a sacred deposit of that spoken revelation. And that's the Bible, that's the scriptures. Right. And it points us to the ultimate revelation, which is the incarnation of the second person, the Trinity, uh, who became the man, Jesus Christ, conceived in the virgin's womb, uh, who, who, lit, who was born in Bethlehem, grew up, uh, in in the area of of Galilee and Nazareth, and has lived the life that we cannot live. Who, when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are just blown away by someone who is so like us and yet not like us. Mm. So that whenever you read this, you realize surely this was the Son of God. Yeah. And so, uh, I would agree that there is a certain level of hiddenness. Uh, I would also push back very strongly and say, but there is sufficient revelation that everyone who wants to know can know. Joe and Dave, follow-up question to that. Yeah, uh, I have a question. Um, I think you've already answered uh, the question, but nevertheless, can samples, you, you've written a blog on this, of course, and uh, stated it very nicely there about a sender-receiver problem, but you quote a particular a philosopher there, a skeptic or an atheist, and he essentially says, and you can correct me, Ken, uh, that uh, there are a number of us who are not necessarily hostile to the idea of the Christian God. We just don't see the evidence. So, so Ken, John, think, I, I, yeah, yeah, there you go. I think you've kind of answered that, but maybe more deliberately for someone of that type, what would you say? He, he talks about non-resistant non-belief. Mm -hmm. I get that. And I get that. There, there are some atheists and agnostics that I read or listen to, and, and um, they seem mournful. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was that said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Mm. Um, and so I do think that this, this type of skeptic uh, are, is, is an interesting uh, person. I would gently uh, push back just a little bit in that, that uh, the Christian faith doesn't really think that there is someone who's truly neutral, um, that, that all of us are, it's a rather binary thing. In fact, what I would say to that person is that I'd say, well, I'm very hopeful for you then. If you're truly mm. someone who is, um, of a disposition of say, okay, I would be glad to believe if you would just give me enough evidence. Well, John's gospel says, John chapter 7 and verse 17 said, uh, you know, examine, search out and see that whether I speak of myself or if I've been sent. And if you want to know, you know, God will reveal yourself. So, so I would say to that person, um, you know, have you, do you, do you actually pray to the one who you say, well, may or may not be there? Right. In other words, what I would say to the person who says, uh, and I'm thinking Michael Ruse is another one who, yes. who's, uh, that says this. Um, and, and I, I would say to them, um, you seem to be very comfortable 
We seem to be very nonchalant about something that you admit yourself are of is of ultimate value and of ultimate importance, because you you say, well, if there is a God, then this is the most important thing in the world. I just don't think there's enough evidence. Um, I, I again, one of the things about uh, Alvin Plantinga's uh, presentation of the ontological argument. Yes, uh, I think I, I, I you know you know, God is that which no greater can be conceived. And that God, you know, if it, God is the necessary being. Um, the way Planica presents this, it's, it's either um, zero or a hundred percent. There's no, well, there's a 99% chance that there is no God, or there, there is a 50% chance that there is a God. That's not the way it works. If it's possible for, for there to be a necessary being, then he is. And so there's only two options. And that is, it's impossible that there is a God, period. Or if it's possible, then he is. Then he is. In so, all possible worlds. Yes, yes. So, so we're dealing with, um, when someone says, well, you know, I'm open to the notion of God, perhaps, perhaps there is or isn't. Um, I'm th I'd say, you haven't really thought through uh, the implications of what the ontological arguments say. Um, the only reason to not believe in God is because there can't be a God. Not that there's not enough empirical evidence. I mean, uh, you know, the empirical evidence per se uh, has, it has real value because uh, the Bible, in fact, appeals to the empirical evidence of the resurrection. So, so we're not denigrating that, but let's not Let's not kid ourselves about the the ontology, the logic of 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 the world in which we live. Um, you know, why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, if the universe is the one brute fact, then 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 there is no God and there can't be a God. But the universe is not a brute fact. I mean, it's very clear that the universe is finite, contingent, contingent. It, there was a time when it was not. So, so what is the one brute reality? What is the, the one thing that is absolutely necessary? Uh, is, it, is, it, uh, the, the, is it nature or material? Well, we, there's nothing about the natural world that seems to be necessary. Multiverse. Yeah, even there. So, so, okay, so if someone says it's an infinite regress or it's an infinite number, okay, then you're saying that that infinite process is the ultimate brute reality. But where did you, how did you arrive at that? Yeah. How did you get that? Um, and, and so, so I, I, I asked someone what it is that you understand to be the ultimate brute reality that is necessary and cannot not be. And uh, when you deal with that question, you find that it's, uh, very reasonable to say, well, perhaps it is mind that produced uh, matter and not the other way around. And uh, so I don't think that, uh, you know, I want, I, I guess what I want to say, I, I want to gently challenge the comfortable, um, uh, what you, would you call him, the passive skeptic? Well, if, it, if I just had enough evidence. Um, Jonathan Edwards had a few things to say in some of his sermons to people who in his day would, who would say, well, if I'm one of the elect, 
Mm. You know, and that's what Michael Ruse does. If you read his, he'll say, look, maybe I'm just not elect. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just not one of those that, I mean, he's a very, he, 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 uh, there are those, I think like uh, one in particular who calls himself a Calvinist atheist. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> because he says, uh, if there is a God, that's a pretty small denomination. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's that, you know, uh, uh, but if you think about it, what they're saying is, is look, if God is real and God wants me, he can come and get me. Yeah. Ball, and, yeah. Ball's in God's court. Yeah. Yeah. It's not my, it's not my fault that I don't know. And Jonathan Edwards, his very famous sermon on, you know, on, on sinners in the hands of an angry God, he, what he points out is, is that, oh no, you don't get away with that. Uh, that, that, you know, if, uh, if God, if Jesus is even possibly true, you know, you have the ultimate responsibility of making sure because, uh, you know, and this, now we're going back to Pascal and his, almost his, his wager here. Uh, this is, these are things of ultimate importance. So the idea uh, that you can, can passively, Edward said, look, you've had all the revelation you need. You have all the grace you need. And so therefore, if you remain in this condition, God will be perfectly just in finding you guilty at the great day. Mm. And so therefore, um, don't sit there passively and complacently. Your very soul is in, is in danger. Your eternal destiny is in danger. Uh, let's not kid ourselves about being complacent. That'd be, I mean, think of all of the other things that we don't allow people to be morally um, inculpable because they were complacent. If, you know, uh, the cold, think of the Holocaust that happened back in the, uh, during World War II. And there are certain world leaders that there's questions where they, did they know what was going on? Right, right. Were they culpable? I'm thinking of certain religious leaders that I won't get into right now. Right. But there are certain documents that have just been released 80 years later on did they, what did he know and when did he know it? Uh, there's a, there are certain issues that are so important that you're not allowed to be indifferent about it and yeah. say, well. That's a powerful point. Yeah. You know, um, it seems like a relevant scripture here is Jesus' statement. John chapter three, where he says, this is the judgment that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and they don't want to come to the light. Uh, you know, it, it, I think this is uh, pinpointing the real problem. Yeah, I think, and I'm agreeing with you hundred percent because uh, like I said, it is the new Testament that lets us know that, there is nothing passive here going on. It is true. Uh, God's spirit is at work and that no one can come to the father except he draws. So we do agree that there is a spiritual work at work here. And I, I, I am a, a son of the reformation enough that I do affirm that very strongly. But Jesus also said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And so, mm -hmm. in other words, there is a sufficient uh, work of grace, and there is a sufficient revelation, and there is a universal offer that's very real. I'd almost want to say 
uh, to someone who says, well, you know, if there was just enough evidence, have you not, do you not know who Jesus, have you not read enough about him? If I didn't believe that he was the incarnate son of God, I'd still want to follow Jesus because I think his, I think what he says is really the way we ought to live. Yeah. The, the, what his teachings are is the way it ought, it ought to be. I mean, I read the Sermon on the Mountain and said, well, of course, he's so right. I can't live like he says here. I'm going to need some, I'm going <laughs> to need a serious dose of forgiveness and a, and a serious work of grace in order to, to fashion me into something that even begins to resemble the Sermon on the Mount. But when you read it, you think, well, he is so right. And when you read about the way he, he teaches and the way he lived and the way he interacted, um, you know, I think that, that uh, you know, it, every skeptic ought to say, man, the teachings of Jesus ought to be printed on every door. It ought to be taught to every school child. Um, and so the fact that someone can have such a, a, a blase, laissez-faire attitude towards uh, Jesus and the teachings of Jesus say, well, not enough evidence. I, I, again, I want to challenge them on uh, moral and ethical grounds. Yeah. Well, we have Dave Rogstad here. Dave is a, is a physicist uh, at RTB Ken. We talk a lot about we talk a lot about faith uh, and science, and I want to ask you this question. When I think about Christianity's influence on science, I think largely of two things, and I, I wonder if, if you think this way or if you would augment or maybe approach it a little differently. When I think about Christianity's influence on science, I, I think historically that uh, Science really begins once. I mean, there are these ancient cultures that make contributions to math and technology, but it doesn't appear that science, science really is birthed. And uh, so it's in, it's in the 17th century that we have the emergence of the scientific revolution. And so historically, it, it begins within a Christian worldview, and you have all of these fathers of science who are almost to a person Christian, some Jewish, but mostly Christian. So I see that element. Philosophically, can I also see the idea that the assumptions of science, the, the beginning points, uh, that there's a real world out there, that it has design and, and purpose, that I can trust my cognitive faculties, that math and logic somehow actually correspond to reality, that those assumptions or starting points seem very consistent with a Christian worldview. Now, that's kind of how I, I see science and Christianity. I wonder what you think about how science and Christianity relate. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and the good news is there's so many great resources available to us on this question now. Uh, historians of science, particularly Peter Harrison and others like him have done some really great work demonstrating uh, what it was about the Christian uh, worldview that, that encouraged and allowed what we call the scientific revolution. Now, the word, I think that expression needs to be in air quotes because you are talking about something that is um, 
we're, we're talking about the, the birth of modern science as a standalone discipline, as a, as a methodology, as a, as a way of learning and knowing. Um, that was not just something that, that it was like a, a light switch or, a, you know, a, the word revolution kind of, you see this thinking, as you're pointing out, all through the late medieval period yeah. that develops into uh, yeah. From from Copernicus all the way up through uh, uh, Isaac Newton, that period of time that develops into what we'd call science. You have Francis Bacon, you know, presenting the empirical inductive method, um, <clears throat> and what you see is uh, it is an interesting question. Why didn't uh, science uh, come up in the Islamic? I mean, there's, there's right. a lot of counterfactual, right. counterfactual questions. Why didn't it sh uh, arrive in the Chinese culture? Yes. Because they were um, economically uh, more advanced than the West. They were socially more stable than the West at that time. Um, they had techno technologically, they were more advanced. They had all kinds of various technologies that everything from gunpowder to the printing press. Yeah. Uh, so why didn't science as a standalone discipline happen there? Uh, and so you, you find where they ask that question. Uh, in the Islamic context, there's a pretty clear uh, answer, and that is they almost did. There were Islamic scholars who were making incredible advancements in mathematics in particular. Algebra is yeah. a big term. Yes. Uh, we, we have a lot uh, that we uh, have received from, like you said, the Arabic mathematicians uh, during the medieval period. But <clears throat> what happened was, is that there was a very strong pushback by the Islamic clerics who are very concerned to say that there's only one cause in the universe, and that was Allah, the will of Allah. And so this very notion of cause and effect, the Aristotelian notions of, of the various fourfold understanding of cause and effect, they saw that as incredibly dangerous, and they clamped down on the various uh, Islamic mathematicians and uh, nascent scientists. And so it was squelched. So they really did have the opportunity. Those kinds of, of problems and objections uh, were not in the Christian understanding. Because of the incarnation, we believe right. that God works through mediated means. How does God reveal himself to us? Uh, is it in this unambiguous burning bush where, you know, where you, you know, no, it's through the mediation of the second person, the Trinity becoming flesh. And so we have uh, this very robust uh, theology uh, in Christian thinking that, yes, God is at work in the world, and that if we want to understand the ways of God, we have to understand what he's done in the world. Peter Harrison has a very interesting book in which he set, points out that even the doctrine of the fall uh, mm -hmm. informed the birth of modern science, in that those like Francis Bacon and others said, um, we don't have the immediate access to God the way Adam did where God, you know, Adam could just ask God, how, how did you, yeah. how did you, how did you form the stars? How did you do this? So we don't have that. So this means that we're going to have to investigate and that we're going to, and the 
technological uh, tools that we use are going to be instruments that help our fallenness. They, they appealed to the limitations, the, the, uh, the, the, the finiteness that we now have because of the fall. And so uh, it wasn't, you know, you, you have the, the distinct Christians understand, the Christian understanding that there is one God uh, who is relational because he's three persons. He's created a world that reflects him. Uh, it is orderly, as you just said, and it operates to according to the laws of God. But we just simply can't, um, by reason alone, know what God's will is. The only way we can know, because God will surprise us. You know, one can look in general revelation and see the universal laws of God in that sense. But if you want to know God's will, what you find is that he expresses it in surprising particular ways. So this means that I can't just be a Platonist mm. and try to understand the mind of God through, through pure logic. I'm also going to have to be an Aristotelian empiricist that I'm going to have to go out. And if I'm going to need to understand what God has done in horses, I'm going to have to go dissect a horse. And if I'm going to have to understand, I'm going to understand what God has done in the earth. I'm going to have to be a geologist and dig through the dirt. Uh, same thing. If I'm going to understand how God has created and ordered the heavens, I'm going to have to be an astronomer. And so it, it is this um, very confident ability that we do have the ability to think God's thoughts after him because we're creating his image, but also this recognition that I'm fallen. So I'm going to need all the help I can get. And, uh, and that God is a is not just pure mind, but he is also will. And so therefore, if I'm going to understand not only the mind of God, but the will of God, I'm going to have to look at the empirical world to see how he did it. He could have created an infinite number of worlds, the multiverse, as Dave said, but this is the one we're in. Yeah. So if I'm going to oh, know God in this world, I'm going to have to look at this world. So you have all of the ingredients that really does give uh, a, a, a robust framework for science to be birthed and then thrive. Yeah. People forget that when the Royal Society uh, uh, for Science was formed in uh, England and Great Britain, it was dominated by Puritans. They were the ones who believed yeah. that, that uh, it, it, was, it was very much um, uh, a, 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 a Christian enterprise. Uh, even even the, the the debacle of the Galileo uh, thing, where you have um, Galileo and the Roman Catholic Church, it wasn't science versus faith. Yeah. Uh, when it, it was <clears throat> men of faith, Galileo was a man of faith. Sure, uh, men of faith having a very robust debate about the way of understanding the world in the light of God's revelation. And quite honestly, whenever I read um, what Galileo had to say about how one interprets the scripture and how one interprets nature, um, you know, Ted Cable has written an excellent book on this, and he's going to be here with, with us at the conference. Right. Um, it sounds rather Protestant. You know, it, 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 it does sound rather, rather, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a rather robust understanding of the confidence in Scripture and how, how we are to, to integrate faith and science in a way that respects both. Um, so it wasn't just simply science versus faith, uh, the way that the, the, the new atheist uh, 
uh, try to pre present it. Uh, it. It is very much a Christian enterprise. Now, it was a terrible misfire there. You know, in the end, uh, it, we 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 want to say that Galileo was right and the, and the church was wrong, um, but it wasn't just simply uh, a matter of of faith versus science. Uh, and so, I think that we can argue that that Christianity did birth uh, the 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 modern scientific world in which we live. Um, it is unfortunate that in many ways modern science operates like a prodigal son. Mm. Uh, and that is that point is made uh, by a number of, of historians and uh, philosophers of science who point out that even to this day, many scientists who do not identify as Christian borrow from the worldview of, of Christianity, including in, uh, its ethics. Right, um, right. Uh, it, it's moral sanction about what science should and should not do. The very notion that of human rights. Well, you don't you don't arrive at the notion of human rights simply by looking at biology, right? Um, so how do how do you arrive that humans there's something exceptional and distinct? And the answer is. Without a Christian worldview, uh, the whole notion of human rights kind of goes crazy. I read um, a news article just recently where a judge ruled that no, elephants do not have, uh, are not humans. Uh, and, and, and because they were, there was a group that was trying to say that elephants in the New York Zoo uh, were persons. Right. Um, I said humans. I meant, I meant persons. Yes. Um, uh, and, and that's the question. You know, what, what, is, what is a as a person. person, yeah, it was, it, because whatever is a person has rights. Uh, well, it used to be uh, in in a, a distinctly Christian worldview. If you're a human, you have human rights. Now, we weren't consistent in that because we had the whole issue of slavery. But even then, whenever that was resolved, it was resolved by right. Christians, actually, Christian brothers fighting uh, over something. You know, so I'm not I'm not trying to to whitewash. Um, uh, Christians in that we've always got it right. Yeah, we always do it. Yes. But in the end, the Christian worldview presented the, the 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 Bible itself is the one that informed us on how we should uh, apply these principles. So um, without uh, the Christian uh, uh, the Christian worldview informing us, that's why science is so adrift today. Yeah. Stanley Yaki, a, a Catholic physicist, philosopher, he proposes, it's controversial, but I, I actually think he's correct, that, that science was stillborn in many of these great civilizations because of uh, their belief systems, you know, reincarnation, cyclical views of nature, um, it even mentions Islam, some of the challenges with uh, the nature of, of Allah. Dave, question, or you want to follow up that question about Christianity and science? You and I talk a lot about uh, your dialogues with uh, your colleagues at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory who don't necessarily see that connection. Well, I, I, I guess it, you know, it would be just re repeating kind of what you've already called attention to in the discussion, and that is that uh, they commonly will say there's just not enough evidence 
this is kind of the argument that's used. Uh, they don't see what they want to see. And so they use that as an excuse. And they put it in, you know, the statement you made a little earlier, uh, uh, Ken, that, that uh, you know, there's no, um, <laughs> now I'm, I'm lost as to how I, how you said it, which is that um, we, um, the ball's in God's court. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the common thing that I hear. Uh, if God wanted me to believe, then he would present the necessary evidence that I uh, need to see in order to believe. I asked a friend of mine uh, who was an atheist uh, not too long ago, what would be the least amount of evidence that you would need in order to consider that maybe Christianity is in fact true? And uh, of course, what he uh, was after some fiddling around and, and stating a number of things, we said, well, if Jesus were to appear in the chair sitting next to us and uh, demonstrate that he is, in fact, uh, you know, the Jesus of the Bible, then I would believe. And I said, well, that's good. I, it's not likely that that's going to happen, but, but that's a piece of evidence that would be pretty powerful. But I didn't ask the question that way. I said, what's the least amount of evidence? Would you have to have that before you would believe? And he never would really uh, state. He more wanted to throw the, the, the question back into my court. Uh, what would I, what kind of evidence would I present uh, that would be convincing to him? And I, I made him mad at one point because I said to him, I think that you're in a position where if I were, no matter what kind of evidence that I were to come up with, you would figure out some way to discount it. You would, you would, you would figure some way of looking at it, some uh, bring in some new information or something that would happen with your thinking that you would be able to discount it, disregard it, and that it wouldn't be convincing to you, and you would still be longing for more evidence. Well, he he kind of got mad at me for for saying that about him. And I had to eventually ask his forgiveness mm -hmm. because, I, you know, that was a presumption on my part. But still, I, I think there's some truth to this, that unless the Holy Spirit opens a person's eyes, I don't think they can see. You're, you're absolutely correct. There's, there's where the theologian in me comes out and says, yes, I mean, uh, the Bible teaches that there is a universal human condition that's serious, that uh, the fall not only separated us from God, it twisted us yes. so that we are not inclined towards him. Uh, there, is a, there is a universal longing for him because he's gone and, and we were created for him. But as Paul points out in Romans chapter one, I mean, one of the things that we forget about Romans chapter one, when Paul says there is this universal revelation that it's clear. Everybody can know there is a God. But what Paul then goes on to say, what do people do with that? Mm. And the, the universal answer is, is that because we're twisted inward. Uh, in curvitas say? Yes. Yeah. yeah. We are turned in on ourselves. And so our hearts, as Calvin says, are um, incurable idol factories. Right. And so we end up worshiping anything and everything. And uh, other than God. And let me just say, 
uh, I really do believe that your atheist friends uh, at JPL, and I'm impressed with their, their intellect and their expertise in their respective fields, but every one of them is a worshiper. Every one of them, every human being is a worshiper already. Uh, and so it, it, it's just simply a matter of who. And of course, <laughs> you talked about offending your, your friend. A statement like that probably would be offensive, but it's still the the un, it is still true uh, that that we are all going to worship. So there is no such thing as okay. Well, I am indifferent. Well, they may have an indifference towards Christ, but it's because they have another uh, uh, something else that has their affections, something else that is ultimate in their heart and lives. And and so and so that goes back. Whenever I, I go I go back again to the opening question, what is ultimate to you? Um, everyone has something that which is ultimate, uh, and it and 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 some people uh, try to leave that underdeveloped and 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 try not to think about it uh, a whole lot. And I'm amazed at this because uh, some of the best and brightest minds in the scientific world. Um, when you talk to them, they may have only had one course in philosophy. Uh, they may have had maybe one course in ethics because, you know, they have to have some kind of course. Highly on. specialized education. Yes, yes. Uh, they, they may have had no courses in theology or Bible. And because they are so brilliant and well-informed in their particular area, and particularly because they have bought into a particular understanding of the nature of science, uh, uh, a, a positivist understanding of, of the world, that if it's not empirically demonstrable, then, I, then it's not true or it's not relevant. That's the way the positives, they said, you know, it's, it's just simply, in fact, they would substitute the name for God with, with Blick because Blick doesn't mean anything. In the beginning, Blick created the heavens and the earth. If it's not empirically demonstrable, uh, then, then it's, it's, not, it's not just unknown, it's, it's irrational and absurd. Um, the problem with that, as everyone uh, can tell you, is that the positivists uh, then found out that um, not everything can be proven. And in fact, they're gonna operate in a world of faith in which they're going to have to take certain things that can never be proved. So they moved from saying, okay, well, we will move away from the verification principle to the confirmation principle, that it can be demonstrated you know, sufficiently. But then it comes on uh, later that dem demonstrated that that's not really what's going on here, uh, that there's a lot of, of, of uh, paradigms and, and particular theories that they'd hold to, not because all the evidence is in favor of it. In fact, what they find out is, is that they hold on to certain hypotheses and theories, despite the fact that there is a significant amount that doesn't fit with it. They're going to hold on to that by faith until they're compelled to hold on to something different. And you say, okay, what is making you hold on to that? And they find out, well, you know, this is where Thomas Kuhn and Karl Popper and others have talked about, and, and, and Emer Lakatos, that there's more going on than simply this pristine brain in a vat that's able to think pure thoughts, that's unimpeded by um, predispositions and will and predilections. 
There's more going on there. And so um, the, the thing that I would push back on my, uh, on your, on your atheist friends is that they're the ones that's operating from this uh, or from the position of, of epistemological purity. Mm. You know, I, I am just a, I am just this pure rationalist. No assumptions. No assumption. No There's no, no blind spots. Right. You know, I, my will doesn't impact me at all. You know, that's what they're saying when they say I'm past. If my will would just be, my will is just as compliant. And I just want to say, come on, man, you're, you're a human being. <laughs> you know, this is not, this is not true of any of us. Right. That's just not the human condition. Very good. Uh, I want to shift gears here, guys, a little bit. Um, Ken, uh, there's two people in church history that I think may have had a universal Christian voice. Um, of course, the, the real universal Christian voice is Scripture. Scripture is what... Uh, I even wonder whether Catholics and Orthodox wouldn't admit at some point that Scripture has no peer mm -hmm. in that, in that um, tradition is always interpretive rather than kind of creative. But the two people I have in mind are Athanasius and C.S. Lewis. Mm. I mean... I, with Athanasius, I mean, in the Eastern tradition, he is a saint. The Catholics revere him. Protestants, because of his defense of the Trinity and the deity of Christ, hold him in high regard. C.S. Lewis is an interesting person. I have Reformed friends who love him. I have Wesleyan friends who, who love him. According to Walter Hooper, who had an audience with John Paul, Pope John Paul, who's now, by the way, St. John Paul, uh, John Paul said about C.S. Lewis that he was a C.S. Lewis fan mm. and that he thought the four loves was on the level of the writings of St. Augustine. Uh, that's quite a quite that's a, a compliment. Yeah. yeah. My question to you, I guess, is this. We have a church that for 2,000 years at various stages has taken different identifications, different branches, different denominations. You're a Southern Baptist. Mm -hmm. What, um, what, it, why do these two have that kind of influence? And is there a way in which the branches and denominations maybe can talk with each other without being so uh, defensive all the time. Um, that's a big topic. I'll let yeah. you choose how you want to respond. Well, Ken, you've, you, you really have brought up something that near and dear to my heart. There is a, um, a movement uh, in, among Baptist theologians to, to recover our appreciation for the early, for the patristic fathers. Wow. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad to see that uh, uh, certain ones like Matt Emerson and others have written from a Baptist perspective, appreciation for Irenaeus and uh, Athanasius, the Cappadocians. Uh, and I, it's interesting that you, you, the, whenever you said, I'm going to pick two, I thought, I thought, well, is he going to do Augustine and Aquinas, you know, you, there, but you, you were, you were right to pick uh, Athanasius because Truth is, as much as you and I appreciate Augustine and Aquinas, yeah. they are of the West. Yeah. 
Right. You the know East, what? They're, they, they view him as very pessimistic. Yeah, they have a different. Uh, they have a different take on Augustine, and yeah. uh, and and and, Agu- and Aquinas. You know, they just kind of missed out on him. Um, so so, but Athanasius is a great call because you are talking about someone that is at the fountainhead yeah. of of. I mean, the role that he played, as you just said, on defending the. If it wasn't, if God had not raised up Athanasius. We, we the gospel would have been a loss to the Arians, and 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 it isn't just that we'd have had a different um, take on things. We would have lost the gospel. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, because a a a Jesus who is merely created, even if he's the ultimate created being, is a Jesus who teaches salvation by works rather than grace. And and if you don't believe that, just just think of our Jehovah Witness friends Boy. who who do hold to an Aryan view yeah. of 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 Jesus. Do you know anybody that has a more works oriented understanding of salvation than than the Jehovah Witness do? Even documenting the number of hours they spend knocking on doors. Yes, yes, and and that is a direct outflow of their Christology. So Athanasius understood that that. That if if Jesus is not God satisfying Himself, then then we lose salvation in toto. So uh, hats off to Athanasius, and hats off to your choice of him. So yeah, I think that he is someone that speaks universally, whether uh, as you said, whether it Eastern or Western. Uh, and then we go narrower in the Western to the Protestant, and we go narrower till to the Evangelical, we go narrower still to Southern Baptist. As a Southern Baptist, I find my uh, great appreciation to Athanasius, and I think that that's, that's a good universal call. The second one you picked, C.S. Lewis, again, is I'm, 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 I'm a big fan also, and you're, you're right. It's amazing how God used um, that cigar-smoking, heavy-drinking <laughs> um, very flawed man. Yes, indeed. But he was, you know, I, I was, I visited his home whenever they were first trying doing the renovations, um, a couple of decades ago. Now it's beautiful. If you ever get the chance to visit the kilns, the kilns, yeah, it's just wonderful what they've done. But you know, he was a lifelong bachelor. He and his, he and his brother, and their habit, they thought that um, putting the tobacco ashes on the rug was going to keep the bugs away and then, then in the ceiling there was this 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 uh, uh kind of like a bathtub ring only is at the top that was the smoke ring <laughs> i i saw that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and and um so there there's just you know but god gifted that man with this remarkable um not just remarkable mind I mean, whenever, uh, if you don't think that, just read some of the things. People forget that he was not just a writer of children's books, or not just an apologist, yeah. but he was an Oxford Don who could speak about medieval poetry in a way that uh, was just amazing. Um, so, you, he, so you're talking about someone who was a genius. I, I you read, I, I read uh, Alistair McGrath's uh, biography not long ago about Lewis. And one of the things that he would do, you know, he had this enormous library there yes. with his, with his tutors. And he would say to one of them, uh, pick a number one through whatever it would be, you know, and they'd say 36. So he'd go over to aisle 36 of the, now pick a number one through 10, you know, uh, 
Seven. Okay. Then go up to seven. Now pick a number one through 12, 12, and they'd pick over and it'd be the 12th book. So now pick a number one through whatever, how many book pages in the book. And they'd say 171. All right, start reading on page 171. And the guy would start reading on page 171. He'd say, oh yeah. And then he would go ahead and tell him the rest of what is in that page. <laughs> That's the kind of brain that C.S. Lewis was gifted with. He, he said he could remember everything he ever read, and it, and it seems like it was true. Yeah, and and so and and so as a result, he was able. Um, I mean, can, uh, another significant apologist of that period was Francis Schaeffer. Yes. Um, why is it that I mean, Schaeffer? We have the Schaeffer Papers at Southeastern, and and we have the Schaeffer Society. But why is it that? Schaefer, for all of his influence, is not known worldwide the way C.S. Lewis is. And the fact of the matter is C.S. Lewis was given, given with certain gifts intellectually, but it wasn't just his intellectual gifts. As you pointed out, it was his book on the four loves. Mm. He was the apostle of desire. Yeah, This is why uh, Pope John Paul said that he reminded him of Augustine, because they both talked about uh, the, the real fundamental problem with the human heart is, is our loves. Right. And it goes back to what I was saying, yeah. you know, about uh, disordered love, disordered yeah. loves and a disordered love is idolatry. Right. You know, and, and the only way that we can have a properly ordered life is to have a properly ordered heart. And what is the properly ordered heart? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you love your neighbors yourself. And to the extent that by grace, our hearts are reorientated correctly, to that extent, we experience the blessing and happiness of God. Um, and so Lewis presents that in a way. Uh, it's interesting he did the old fashioned kind of apologetics that we do here at reasons to believe, mm -hmm. but he also really, I mean, that's what he was doing with his children's books uh, with yeah. the Chronicles of Narnia. He really, he realized that he, he can't just, you can't just speak to the head. You've got to speak to the, to, to, to the human heart. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling from Alistair McGrath here. What he yeah. did was, and, and Dave, and, and, and uh, go to your point that was talking to your, to your atheist friend, he said, what, what Lewis had the gift of doing is not just showing you that Christianity is true. He had the gift of showing you, don't you wish it were true? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When he got done, you know, you, you longed for, the, he, made, he made the gospel beautiful. He did. And then I think that's something that we as apologists, we need to remember that there are three great things, you know, what is the true, what is the good, and what is the beautiful? Mm. And if we only debate with our skeptical friends about what is true, we, we, have, we have undercut ourselves um, and, and we are missing out. It, because we do need to remind them about, okay, what do you believe is the good and why? Yeah. And what is the beautiful? And everybody loves the beautiful. And, and whenever you, whenever you realize, you know, the beauty of God, the beauty of, of Jesus, the beauty of the gospel, it, it touches, it resonates with us in a way that, um, you know, 
it, it isn't sterile. It isn't just mere truth anymore. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And, th- and that, that's something Lewis did wonderfully. Guys, one more topic before we wrap up. By the way, I just want to say Jump in. that I remember everything that I've ever read. I just can't access it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Join the club, right? <laughs> one more topic, Ken. Uh, some months ago, you gave a quotation, I think, from, from another author about the difference between having a career and having a vocation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there was something to the effect that in a career, you you draw attention to yourself. Look, I'm I'm this scholar. I've done this. I've done that. I want people to read what I've written. A vocation uh, is bringing attention to the Lord. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about that. I mean, you, you've had a long and distinguished career. Mm-hmm. Uh, you write things, and they're of excellent quality. You want people to read them. Um, you've studied and trained, you want to utilize all the gifts that God has given you. How do you navigate that, uh, that clash on one side? Um, I do want people to read my books because I work my tail off to write them. On the other hand, I'm here to serve the Lord. Share your thoughts about that topic. Yeah, I'm, I'm on, I'm on the journey with you. I, 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 I want to say that right up front that I, I'm not, I think that to my shame, this is probably an area that late in life, I am learning better. I also think that this is an area that we as evangelicals, maybe Baptists in particular, I am speaking as a Baptist, that we have not done a very good job of, of presenting a well thought out theology of vocation to our people in the mm. pew, whenever, uh, uh, even though we we argue that that we as Baptists are very egalitarian in in our understanding of of the polity, that everyone is equal. That's why we don't, you know, we, we try to if we're going to call our pastor anything, which you know, it's it's brother kin. Yeah, uh, emphasizing this egalitarian notion, but that's not really what we do. I mean, in in reality, what we think is, is that there are those rare few individuals that experience the call of God, and they're the ones who are called into ministry, vocatio. And so therefore, the rest of us are to support them now with our dollars uh, through our tithes and offerings so that they can exercise the gifts of their calling. And so there are pastors, missionaries, evangelists, staff persons in, in, in full-time Christian service. Um, that, that really is, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's beyond unscriptural, it's dangerous in that it, it fails to recognize that all Christians have this profound call upon them. And that um, we are to glorify God, not just when we're teaching Sunday school, but the, the businessman is not there to make money. He, his ultimate goal is to glorify Jesus Christ. It, it, and, and he is to glorify Jesus Christ by, by exercising his gifts in that calling mm-hmm. 
uh, of, of whatever calling that is. And so um, learning to reorientate our thinking in that way um, can, it, it is transforming. Uh, it, it is, the, as we said, it goes back to what we discussed about earlier. It reorientates our loves. Right. There's a, and, and I, I, I won't say where I was at, but I was at a church in, within the last, just, it was just pre-COVID. I mean, just before COVID. But I was at this wonderful church and the pastor got up and he said, um, you know, the world has you Monday through Saturday. And he was talking about various opportunities to serve in that church, whether it was an usher or Sunday school teacher, whatever. He said, here's, here's the chance this one day a week in which you get to serve the Lord. And as I listened to him, I, I appreciated he was trying to get people to go work in the nursery and, and all of those kind of things. But I disagreed 100% with what he was saying. Mm -hmm. It isn't that, you know, Monday through Saturday, the world has you. And then on Sunday, you serve the Lord. No. No, no, you know, every day, Sunday to Sunday, yeah. we, we are called of God and, and it isn't okay now. I mean, and this is why there is this bifurcation in so this dichotomy in so many Christians in the way that they conduct themselves um, throughout the week. And they really don't know how to relate what they do with what is going on what they're taught in church. Right. And this goes back to the very fundamental notion of God calling us to be it, to be kingdom uh, witnesses, exiles of the kingdom. Uh, it, but we are, we are expressions of the kingdom of God, wherever we're at, whatever business or our, 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 whether it's an educational institution, whether it's a business, whether, you know, and so once one does that, it really does or starts doing that because it is, let's face it, it isn't just a light switch. Uh, it, this, is, this, is a, this is a sanctification, uh, mm. an incremental experience of learning more and more. And I just have to admit, um, there have been times that I have had a career and, mm. and you say, well, wait a minute, you're, you're a preacher, you know, you, you, preachers can, can, can commit this error maybe quicker mm. because we have the facade that everything that's going on here in this local church, it is, uh, you know, that we can find our identity in that really quickly, which is yeah. very dangerous. Uh, and it's, and it's been disastrous for, 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 for even many ministers. So all that to say, um, <clears throat> to understand everything I'm doing, whether I eat or drink or whatsoever you do, this is for the glory of God. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm still working at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, in light of that, Ken, you've written a number of books. Um, our listeners, our book readers, mm -hmm. give, give a few of your titles and how they can track and get those books. Yeah. One of the books that I think that, uh, I would encourage people uh, that are that listen to this podcast is one that that I that Joe Aguirre and and I co-edited with uh, James Stump, uh, and it is a dialogue uh, between Reasons to Believe and Biologos, and uh, the reviews for that book is are overwhelmingly positive mm -hmm. because of the content, 
the way that the engagement was, uh, the way that the way that the discussion went about, you were involved in that. Yeah. And so that is a book that I, I, I feel good about recommending. There's a second book. Old uh, Earth or Evolutionary Creation. Yes. Yes. Uh, and and it's, it's, it says uh, a dialogue between reasons to believe and biologos. Um, and so... <clears throat> Another book, 40 Questions on Creation and Evolution, mm. that we are looking at doing perhaps a revised edition because that's part of the 40 Questions series. Uh, ben Merkel is the sen senior editor for that, and they do like 40 questions on elders, 40 questions on uh, eschatology, 40 questions on fill in the blank, right. uh, the historical Jesus. Really, 40... <clears throat> 40 questions on creation and evolution is just too broad. So we're looking at actually dividing it into two separate books. Mm. Um, like it, so it'd be 40 questions on Genesis 1 through 11, and then 40 questions on creation and evolution, because, wow. A lot of content. A lot of content. But I do feel that uh, Mark Rooker and I co-wrote it. Mark Rooker is a young earth creationist. Wow. I'm an old earth creationist. And I, I again, uh, it received... Uh, positive reviews because it, it again it demonstrated that we can have this conversation and and deal with some hard questions yeah, that's great. Uh, in a way that okay, that that seems to 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 show hopefully show charity there's another book i did on soteriology from a molinist perspective called salvation and sovereignty mm -hmm. for those who feel okay I, I want to affirm with my Arminian brethren that the gospel is presented everywhere mm. and that it's available to all. And yet I really do agree with my Calvinist brethren that salvation is of the Lord. Mm. And unless the Lord does the work, I'm not going to get saved. You know, you do feel like uh, both of them have something to say. And so they end up trying to be some kind of Calvinian. Right, um, right. Okay, well, salvation and sovereignty is a Molinist approach. Uh, you can read and see whether or not I succeeded, uh, but I do try to present something that affirms what I think most evangelicals want to affirm are those are those things that uh, is a mediating position uh, between Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, uh, but Molinism is one of the more interesting philosophical approaches oh, yeah. to divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And so it's not a philosophical book arguing for Molinism. It is a theological work that takes Molinism and applies it to soteriology. Joe, it's been great to have Ken with us. Sure uh, is. We're going to, he's going to be here with us all week. And so uh, I hope all of our listeners appreciated your Ken, you're, you're a very articulate speaker, and uh, I really appreciate that. So thanks for being with us. It's been a joy. All right. And I'll just add one uh, item to read. Uh, Ken, you wrote a paper, a white paper for RTB, uh, just a matter of a month, a few months ago, called The Salvation of Creation, Cosmic mm. Aspects of Redemption. And that's a wonderful uh, resource to add to the others that, that you already talked about. So I'll recommend that as well. You can just go to our site, reasons.org, and just type that in, the salvation of creation, and it should come up. All right, it's gonna, uh, that's going to wrap it up for this uh, podcast. Don't miss any episodes of Straight Thinking. You can subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast, and uh, you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. For the guys here, both Ken's and Dave, this is Joe Aguirre. 
with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.